everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm speaking with Tara Conklin about her New York Times best-selling debut novel, The House Girl. Most people would agree that we in the United States have trouble talking about race. The past reality of slavery is in some ways even more resistant to discussion, more distant in time, too long ignored, too harsh for comfort. Yet silence on a topic that necessarily provokes strong feelings does nothing to improve the situation. In this sense, Tara Conklin's searing fictional portrayal of the lives of two women separated by time, space, and racial identity offers a real opportunity. It may not solve the problem, but it should at least start a conversation. The story opens in the antebellum South. Josephine, Lynnhurst, Virginia, 1852. Mr. hit Josephine with the palm of his hand across her left cheek, and it was then she knew she would run. She heard the whistle of the blow, felt the sting of skin against skin. Her head spun, and she was looking back over her right shoulder, down to the fields where the few men Mr. had left were working the tobacco. The leaves hung heavy and low on the stalk, ready for picking. She saw a man's bare back and the new hired man, Nathan, staring up at the house, leaning on a rake. The air tasted sweet, the honeysuckle crawling up the porch railings thick now with flour and the sweetness mixed with the blood in her mouth. The blow came without warning, no reason that Josephine could say. She had been sweeping the front porch, as she always did first thing, clearing off the dust and leaves blown up by the night wind. A snail had marked a trail across the dew-wet wood of the porch floor and rested its brown shell between the two porch rockers. Josephine had caught that snail with a sharp swoop of the broom, sent it flying out into the yard, and then she heard Mr.'s voice behind her, coming from inside the house. He said something she could not make out. It was not a question. There was no uplift in tone, nor was it said in anger. His voice was measured, it had seemed to Josephine then, before he hit her. Not urgent, not hurried. She stopped her sweeping, turned around, looked to the house, and he walked out the wide front door. A proud front door, Mrs. Lou always liked to say. And that's when his hand rose up. She saw his right arm bend, and his lips part just slightly, not to open, but just the barest hint of dark space between them. And then his palm, the force of it against her cheek, and the broom dropping from her fingers, the clatter as it fell. Something shifted in Josephine then, a gathering of disparate desires that before had been scattered, she could not name them all, there were so many, but most were simple things, to eat a meal when hunger struck her, to smile without thinking, to wear a dress that fit her well, to place upon the wall a picture she had made, to love a person of her choosing. These distilled now, perfectly, here on this September morning, her hunger for breakfast sharp in her belly, the sun pink and resplendent in the sky. Today was the last day, there would be no others. And now, let us welcome Tara Conklin to New Books in Historical Fiction. Tara, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. It's my pleasure. Um, I'm really looking forward to talking about your book. I know it's won all kinds of wonderful awards, and I loved it. I thought it was a, a fascinating topic and beautifully done. Oh, thank you. Um, you were a lawyer for a while, as I understand. What made you decide to write novels? I was a lawyer for about for seven years. Um, 
I have always been sort of a scribbler of stories. Ever since I was a kid, I kept a journal and, you know, would write down little story ideas and, and, um, and this was just something that I did kind of to entertain myself. And I never, I never really considered it a potential profession. It just seemed, uh, A, like too much fun (laughs) and B, like I couldn't make any money at it. So, so I just kind of did it, you know, really ever since I was, you know, nine or 10 years old. And, um, and then the stories that started, the story that began as the house girl was really started in this vein. Um, I just, I just was, was interested in this one idea and started writing a story about it. And it became much larger. And I always told myself, you know, when I retire from the law, that's when I'll really focus on writing. And I just realized that I couldn't wait that long. <laughs> I really um, wanted to, I really didn't want to stay in the profession that I was in, and I wanted to give writing a chance uh, before I before I was in my 60s or 70s. Um, so, so, so the house girl really, really, you know, did it for me. I mean, the house girl those characters in that story kind of propelled me into taking the chance to, to leave the law. So was this the first novel that you had written? It, I had started, I had one uh, kind of novel beginning that is, I think under my bed in some box right now <laughs> um, that, but I, but it was, I didn't get very far in it. And um uh, so the house girl was the first one that I really, you know, focused on and called a novel. Although I didn't really call it a novel until I had written for a couple years. It was more these stories. Um, I mean, it started as the the very first place where it began was with the story of Caleb Harper. Um, who's a slave doctor, which is now the last narrative to appear in the book. Um, but the book is divided into kind of four separate sections, three of which are historical in 1852 Virginia, and then one which is modern day, Lena Sparrow in 2004 New York. And I wrote the three historical sections before I even really conceived of the contemporary section. And so those historical sections were, were just kind of stories that that I you know that I knew were were linked um but I didn't think of it as a novel until pretty or as a novel in progress until pretty far down the road I think the word novel is just too scary you know <laughs> to say like I'm writing a novel it just seemed too daunting and and uh too big of a concept I think by by Saying I'm right, I'm working on these stories. I mean, saying that to myself, it made it a more manageable task, particularly when I was still working. So, at what point did you realize you had a novel on your hands? Um, I let's see. Well, I so I I started so I I, I wrote Caleb's section first. And then I was working on Josephine and Dorothea, Josephine Bell, who is sort of my main heroine, and Dorothea Rounds, who's a young white woman working on the Underground Railroad. And I was was working on those three sections um, over the course of, of 
probably two, two and a half years while I was still working full-time as a lawyer. And at a certain point in time, I mean, I'd gotten those three stories to a stage. I felt like I'd taken them as far as I could. I felt like they were more or less finished, but I didn't really know what they were. I didn't really know what to do with them um, because at that point, it wasn't, they weren't a novel. They weren't, they weren't really short stories on their own. Um, and I just, I just felt like, okay, I've, I've worked on this project. You know, I've, I've, inve- I've done a lot of research. I've learned a lot about this period of American history. I mean, I learned a tremendous amount writing this book that I, that I didn't know previously. Um, and now it's finished. And I kind of, I said, now I'm really going to focus on being a good corporate lawyer <laughs> and focus on my career. And I was kind of at the point in in a legal career, certainly at a firm, where I had to kind of go for partner. You, you reach a certain level of seniority in a law firm and you either sort of quit or go someplace else or you work, you know, 14-hour days and try to make partner. So I was like, okay, I'm going to really buckle down and make part and try and make partner. And, and I've got to stop working on this, this writing project. That's what I called it. I called it my writing project at that point. And, um, but these characters, I mean, I literally dreamt about them. I, I could not get them out of my head. And Josephine in particular really just took possession of my brain and, um, and, you know, I would talk to her during the day and I would dream about her. And, and I, I kind of reached this point where I thought, you know, if I don't try to do something with this writing project, um, I will regret it. I will really regret this if, if I just let these characters sit under my bed, um, as I did with most of, with all of my other stories that I'd written. And so at that point, I said, okay, let's turn this into a novel. Um, and that's when I left my job to, to work on it. Uh, because it was also kind of unsustainable to be working full time and, and, and really trying to, to write, to work this into a novel. And there was a lot going on with my legal career at the time as well that wasn't making me very happy. So, and, and, uh, and writing was making me extremely happy. So I, um, so yeah, so I took a break from the law and, um, and that's when I started to, to really think of it as a novel. And the books that I love to read, um, or many of my favorite novels are, are, back and forth in time. I think that having sort of dual narratives, um, historical and contemporary, really adds. I mean, it just lets you look at the history in, in a different kind of way. It gives you uh, a lens to, to view historical events that, that you might not have um, thought about previously. And I, and I think it really enriches, or can enrich, both of the stories to have dual narratives and possession by A.S. Byatt. I don't know if you've read that book. I'm sure you have. Yeah. Um, is one of my all time favorite novels. And so, and I also love epistolary novels. I mean, I love the idea of sort of, you know, uncovering these lost correspondence and, you know, uh, notes and little pieces of personal information that, that have been left, um, 
for us to discover. And so that was very much the spirit that I that I went that I that I wanted to imbue into into the novel. So so that's so that was kind of the the like the initial spark of of inspiration for having a contemporary a contemporary storyline to run alongside the um the historical narratives. And also on a very I guess basic gut level, it just made me feel really sad to leave these characters in the past. And I really wanted Josephine's struggle and her sacrifices and her life to mean something in a contemporary context. And so that was that was another reason why I I felt like as a novel there needed to be a contemporary storyline uh, to run alongside the historical. <laughs> yeah, I think that's it's a very effective strategy. It it works very well in part, I think, because the situation that Josephine is in is so sad. It's and it's it's not clear when it's going to be fixed or how it's going to be fixed because it's not she's she's the victim in a sense of of yeah. a larger social problem and even from a present perspective where you know it's all going to change in in 14 years or so it doesn't it doesn't help her i mean she's yeah um but but one more question before i go into asking you explicitly about the book once you had decided to write it as a novel did yeah. you then just sit down and do it or did you do courses or read books or how did you get um, into the actual process of writing the novel? Yeah, well, I did all of the above. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I sat down and I wrote it. Um, my, I, I wrote when my kids were in preschool and which is about four hours in the morning, um, take off a half an hour for commuting. Um, and I I don't have an MFA, so I I really um, and this this whole idea of the craft of writing I, I you know had always heard that term sort of thrown around, but I had no idea what it actually meant. And so I bought um, well first I took out from the library a bunch of different textbooks about writing fiction, and then found one that I really thought was was wonderful that is still you know by my bedside um janet burroway's i I think it's just called how to write fiction or fiction writing craft or something like that um and and i studied it you know i i really uh look you know really really studied that book and I took, um, there's a place in Seattle called the Richard Hugo House that offers writing classes for sort of, for people who don't have MFAs, for, for kind of second career writers or people who, who just are writing for enjoyment. Um, so they're, they tend to be in the evenings um, at times that, you know, uh, if you have a day job, you can, you can make the classes. Um, and I took a class on novel writing uh, at the Hugo House. And I just, you know, this was what I was doing. Um, I, I, you know, I really focused on it and and wrote every day um, for about, it took about, I would say, a year, year and a half um, to, to get Lena's section um, to a point where I thought it was solid. And then, and then the process of of organization, organizing the novel, was 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 another very long 
uh, process. Because I had written each section separately, putting them all together, you know, was was uh, interesting, <laughs> challenging. And I did it. I mean, I tried every permutation you can possibly imagine. I put them together and took them apart and put them together and took them apart. And uh, I remember at one point I had the whole, you know, the whole manuscript printed out and laid out on our living room floor, and I had a pair of scissors and a glue stick, and I was literally, you know, like cutting and pasting and trying to, but just like having the physical pages, uh, I found very helpful, um, uh, as opposed to, you know, seeing them on the computer screen. And um, and then, and I got it to a point where I thought the structure was, was solid, and that's when I started to send out to agents. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, to literary agents, and uh, the agent, my agent now, Michelle Brower, um, a folio literary, she was one of the first ones that I contacted, and she called me. I, um, she called me after reading the book, and she said, "You know, I love the novel. I love the novel, but it still needs a lot of work." And her big, she really didn't like the structure at that point, and um, and I, when we talked through it, I saw why, and I totally agreed with her. So then we spent another, then I spent another probably six months working with Michelle to reorganize again and edit. Um, I cut at that point probably, I don't know, probably 15 to 20% of the text. Um, and then, and then it was in and then it was in the structure that it is in now. So it was a very, it was a very long, you know, process, trial and error, um, to get to the book as it is now. Uh, well, it really paid off. I mean, I think it's always a very long process for the first yeah. one. Um, people see, you know, because you learn so much while you're doing the first one. Oh yeah. That you oh, can then gosh. apply to the second one. Yeah, um, I tell people that I learned how to write a novel by writing a novel. <laughs> So did I. I mean, I can still remember the first draft of mine, and there was no conflict in it. It was like yeah, <laughs> everybody yeah. was sweet, and everybody loved everybody, and the story went absolutely nowhere, right? Oh, but, it sounds wonderful. <laughs> I'm sure it would be a very nice place to live. <laughs> but anyway, so let's talk about the um, the structure that you came up with eventually. I mean, you've already answered this question that Josephine is really the main character, um, but Lena also has her own story and her own uh, character yeah. development and so on. Um, so tell us about Josephine. Um, well, Josephine, yeah, I, I really see her as the heart and soul of the book. Um, she's a 17-year-old enslaved African-American woman living on a failing tobacco plantation in a, histor- in a fictional town called um, Lynnhurst, Virginia. And she is an artist. She um, has grown up uh, in this in this on um, this plantation called Bell Creek. And her missus, her mistress, her name is Mrs. Lou, and Josephine calls her Mrs. Um, has been unable to have children. She's had a series of miscarriages throughout her life, and she loves Josephine um, in the in to the best of her ability, given the um, given the constraints, the societal constraints that she's grown up in, and the world, the completely 
messed up world that she lives in, she, she, Josephine is the closest thing that she will ever have to a child. And, um, and so she, and Mrs. herself, uh, sees herself as, as kind of an amateur artist. She, she wants to be an artist, but she's not very good. Um, but she has turned her, the, the room that was going to be a nursery for her, for her children into an art studio. And this is where she spends most of her time. And Josephine, who is her house girl, her her um, her maid essentially, uh, spends time in the studio with her. And Mrs. Liu allows her to make art herself and and to paint. Um, and so and so Josephine, for Josephine, you know the the artistic impulse is really what has allowed her to stay sane and to develop a sense of self in this, you know, horrible world that she lives in where she's told that she is nothing, that she belongs, that 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 her body and her mind and the product of her the product of her hands, everything that she has and everything that she is belongs to someone else. Um, you know, in that world she has developed a real sense of who she is and and a sense of optimism about the world and hope about the world and her her art and her artistic spirit and her artistic instinct is what has kind of allowed that to to happen um it's given her this sense of self and so so she's you know she's um she has uh, when we meet her on the, in the opening scene of the book, she is slapped by her owner, Mister, um, and the reader does not know why she slapped. Uh, Josephine does not know why she slapped, and I did that specifically to show just how arbitrary this world is that she's living in and how much she is at its mercy, how she has, you know, she can be hit or, you know, any number of indignities imposed upon her and she is powerless. And so this slap acts as kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back. I mean, this is the final, this is the final indignity that she will endure. And she, in the opening scenes, decides to run from Bell Creek. And so we follow Josephine on her last day at the plantation and sort of her preparations for running and her you know, both her emotional and mental kind of preparations and and her fears and her misgivings and second thoughts. And we're we're sort of with her during the course of that last day. So, um, and do you want me to talk about how her her connection to Lena and how Lena? Uh, Yeah, let's get to that in just a second. Um, Because one of the things that, that comes out in that passage and I really noticed, I mean, I noticed it when I read it the first time and then I read the rest of the book and then I was reading it again for the introduction and I thought, you know, she wants so little. She wants these things that you do a lovely job, but you give this little list of the things that she wants in life and it's the things that we all take for granted. You know, she wants to yeah. be able to eat when she's hungry. She wants to be able to love the person that she loves without having some master or mistress tell her whom she must marry. She... 
you know, these really simple things, it, it gives, um, in some ways, you know, the writing is very beautiful. And at the same time, it's almost horrifying because, you know, on, on the one hand, you have the sun that's pink and resplendent, and then you have Master hitting her out of nowhere. And, yeah. and her desire just to... Um, it gives a very clear sense of, of why she wants to go because, she, you know, she wants to hang a painting on her wall. She wants yeah. to have a wall to hang a painting on. You know, that's yeah. these very simple yeah. things that she's been denied for no reason except that she was born in the wrong place at the wrong time, basically. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, the book, um, you know, looks at different kind of concepts of freedom and different... Um, ways that people feel trapped. And, of course, Josephine's is the most elemental. You know, I mean, freedom for her is these very, very basic things that, you know, every human being deserves. And yet, yeah, she's she's been born into this ridiculous, horrible world where she she legally cannot have them. Um, so, so, yeah, it's a... So, by opening with that scene, yeah, that kind of sets that sets the theme of, of freedom that kind of runs throughout the rest of the book in, in different guises and, and different different shades. And I have to say, I won't say whether she does run or not, let alone what happens to her based <laughs> on her decision, but as a person who's considerably older than 17, I spent the whole first half of the book going, oh, don't do this, don't do this. <laughs> Because I can only imagine that it was going to come to some horrible conclusion for her. Yeah. I mean, as bad as it was. I mean, if you think about it, you know, and this is why, you know, in my research, I read a lot of slave narratives um, written primarily by by slaves that had escaped from the South um, and then, you know, gone north and become part of the abolitionist movement. And, I mean, every single one of these narratives was imbued with such drama and such, um, you know, violence and danger. And, I mean, each one of these stories is so amazing. And, uh, you know, I mean, the, the 12 Years of Slave, Solomon Northrop, I mean, that's, that's a very famous slave narrative and, and um, you know, made into a beautiful film. And every single one of these slave narratives that, that I mean, you can find them in anthologies. They're, you know, they're, they're readily available. Every single one of these narratives has that same level of, um, of personal courage and, you know, and, and a window into both the best and the worst of, of humanity, really. They're just amazing documents. Well, part of the reason that I was afraid for her was because I wondered if she had any clue what running meant. In a, in, I mean, obviously she knew about the patrollers and all of this kind of thing, but she was on this plantation in Virginia. And yeah. I kept thinking, does she have any idea how far away Philadelphia is? How long it's yeah. going to take her to get there? <laughs> you know? yeah. Because yeah, she's, she never left, she's never yeah, left the she plantation. Doesn't. Yeah, and that's why she tries. I mean, at one point in the book, 
she, there's a there's a man who um, who is a hired hand on Bell Creek at Bell Creek, kind of a recent arrival, and she you know goes to him because he has tried to run several times before, and she sees him as kind of an expert on it, and she goes to him to ask for advice and and to ask how to get there, um, and I think that was really how information was passed was kind of just by word of mouth and people talking. Um, about you know someone else's experience and and oftentimes well, uh, well again this is from the slave narratives that I've read but but um, family members would escape and then sometimes they would come back to help to help their 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 family members um, escape and of course there were conductors on the Underground Railroad I mean Harriet Tubman being the most famous of them who repeatedly <laughs> went back to the South and helped guide. Um, uh, fugitives up to the north, um, and I mean that. I mean that history for me as a child. I remember learning about that. I grew up in this in a tiny town in western Massachusetts that had um, some uh, escaped slaves that had lived in the town and and was um, had some people who were very involved in the abolitionist movement. And um, and I just remember learning about these stories in elementary school and just being absolutely fascinated by this idea of the Underground Railroad and, and, um, and again, just the inherent drama in these situations where, you know, freedom and slavery and life and death, and, and it just, um, it really captured my imagination. And then I didn't really study that time period or that, um, you know, the, that these, these events until I, I started writing this book and kind of reawakened my interest in, in the time period. And I was really able to go into it much deeper, of course, than I did in, you know, third and fourth grade. Um, and I don't know why I had never studied it before. You know, I was a history major in college, but I, I primarily studied European history. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I feel I feel that writing this book gave me a real education uh, in, in American history. Let's talk a little bit about your research, and then we'll get to Lena, because I do want to talk to her while we mm-hmm. still have some, talk about her when we still have time. So you read these slave narratives. Were there other things that you read? Did you read plantation <laughs> records and things? I did, yeah. I read... Um I read a lot of. I I, I tried to look primar- at primary sources or or historical, you know, books that that relied pr- on primary sources. Um, and I I looked at a lot of correspondence, um, letters, and and um, and primary documents. Yeah, plantation records. There's a great website that's um, maintained by the University of Virginia, and it's called um, Two Valleys in the Shadow. I think that's what it's called. It's in, I have it in my acknowledgments in the book, but it is. Um, it looks at two communities on either side of the Ohio River, um, which, of course, was the demarcation between free and slave states, and um, both before, during, and after the Civil War, and it has letters and military records and farm records and all of this, uh, newspaper clippings, I mean, a whole sort of window into these two different communities. And I must have read every single document on that, <laughs> on that website. I mean, they're just fascinating, fascinating um, 
documents and that that really gave gave insight into what into what the the people in these communities were thinking about this issue about the issue of slavery which of course was the you know the issue of the day um and so i so i used that i used you know that those sort of resources, the slave narratives. I also I looked at slave narratives that were written um, before the Civil War uh, as part of the abolitionist movement, and then I also looked at the slave narratives that were written um, that were uh, taken during the WPA in the 1930s. There, there was a government program. I'm sure you're perhaps you're familiar with it to compile the the memories of the last surviving slaves, and all of these all of these interviews are online through the Library of Congress, and there are thousands of them. I think thousands, certainly hundreds. There are a lot of them, and um, and that was also a very rich resource for me. And then I also read history books. Um, there's a there's a really great history book of the Underground Railroad called Bound for Canaan. Um, which was, which is, you know, fascinating and very well researched and, and tells the stories of both the leaders of the abolitionist movement and, and the Underground Railroad and, and also specific stories of, of um, enslaved people who ran. And that was a huge help to me. Um, and yeah, yeah. So there, oh, there is another book that was very, very critical um, The Hemmings of Monticello. Mm-hmm. Which is about Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, and Sally Hemings, and uh, written by Annette Gordon Reed. And that book, I mean, both for the information that it contained and also her approach to historical documents and to the historical record, I found um, quite amazing and very creative in a, in a in a kind of thinking outside the envelope way. Uh, about and and just but in a very kind of common sense way and challenging assumptions about the history that we've learned um you know uh, just the quest like what are the questions that we should be asking and and who are the people who are not who are not in the historical record who are the people who are who are standing behind it and uh, you know let's let's try and and look behind um, what we've been taught and, and try and see those people. And uh, so I found that book incredibly uh, helpful and enriching. I really, I loved that book. I remember, th- I, I thought about Monticello when I was reading your book. There's a yeah. moment when uh, Lena goes to visit the Bell Estate and she notices that there is no, Essentially, as far as you could tell, there was no um, mention of the slaves. You know, there there are no slave cottages at the estate, and even the accounts. And I remember hearing there was some. I think it was actually on um, Studio Three Hundred and Sixty. They do this American Icon series, and at one point they went to Monticello, and they noted exactly what you describe in the book that Jefferson in his notes would say things like peas were planted, you know, like they just yeah. planted themselves. You know, there were no yeah, yeah, people. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and it's, it's this, this erasure of, of, yeah. you know, the lives of, of thousands and thousands of people yeah. whom we until very recently didn't even give the dignity of noticing that they had lived. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think as soon as you start 
asking those questions, as soon as you start looking at the way that sentence is written, like peas were planted, you know, as soon as you start examining that, it, you, it, I mean, it just raises so many other questions. And I found myself, after having read Annette Gordon-Reen's book, as I went to other history books, um, just uh, the questions that were emerging in my in my head as I read were voluminous. I mean, it it, it just seemed like there was this whole other world existing that that hasn't that we don't know that much about, and that has been ignored. And and also the the physical markers of it, um, in so many ways, have just have fallen into the dust. I mean, many plantation houses did m- most. I would. I mean, I don't want to speak outside my own knowledge, but but many, many did not maintain the slave quarters in, in any way. And there's there's just no physical marker of, yeah, these thousands and thousands of, of people, of enslaved people who, um, who, who, who worked and lived and died, you know, working to build the South, working to build this country. And, um, and it just, and as soon as I start kind of asking those questions, they so many, you know, it was just like a, it was a snowball rolling down the hill, you know, and I and I just it, it just kept raising bigger and bigger questions. I mean, I was listening to um, about the time that I was working on sort of the art angle of the of the book. Um, I was listening to an interview about Thomas Jefferson, and they were talking about. A some kind of some species of flower that had been developed at Monticello, and they were crediting Jefferson with the propagation of this new species. And they would say, "Oh, you know, in Jefferson's garden, you know, this this was done." And Jefferson, you know, and I mean, Thomas Jefferson was, of course, an amazingly intelligent, learned, accomplished man. And you know, not to take anything away from Thomas Jefferson, but um, but I was listening to this to this uh, to this interview. And I'm not much of a gardener, but but my mom and my sister are amazing gardeners. And I know that it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of attention to to develop a new species of flower. I mean, you have to be out there. You have to be doing the cuttings. You have to be, you know, year after year, season after season. And I was thinking to myself, you know, Thomas Jefferson was a pretty busy guy. <laughs> you know, was he really the one out there in his garden doing this propagation? I mean, certainly not. It was his gardener or his team of gardeners. And who were those people? What were their names? What else did they, what else did they accomplish in their years at Monticello, you know, and will we ever know their names? Um, And it just, yeah, it just, the sort of the lawyer in me, the sort of, you know, person who is, you know, this is justice and this is injustice. I mean, that part of me, as I was doing the research, was getting very riled up. (laughs) The more and more I read these kinds of, these kinds of historical accounts, you know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, plants were propagated. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, so, so let's go back to the art, because the art is what ultimately um, joins, uh, brings Josephine and Lena together in yeah. quotation marks, because Lena is aware of Josephine. Josephine can't possibly be aware of Lena because there's a, a difference of 150 years. or th- Actually, it's more like, yeah, 150 years plus. Yeah. Um, so so Josephine, as, as we noted, 
you know, and this is another sort of lawyer question, is that, in effect, she has no legal existence just because she's considered to be property. And so her art is not recognized as her art. Um, And it's... Explain to us, first of all, tell us a bit about who Lena is, besides the fact that she's a lawyer, and then how she gets to Josephine. Um, So that way I won't go beyond the point in the plot that you want to reveal. (laughs) Okay. Um, Well, Lena is a 24-year-old white woman, or not African-American woman, um, working at a corporate law firm in New York. And she is a junior litigation associate, which means she's kind of at the bottom of a very big hierarchical chain in a law firm. She's the lowest, she's the lowest uh, element. And she is assigned to work on a slavery reparations lawsuit that, the, that her law firm has taken on at the request of a very important client named Ron Dresser. And Ron is a is a man who brings a lot of business to the to the law firm, and he is African American, and he wants to pursue this this kind of impact litigation you would call it this this reparations claim as kind of a personal it's his own personal interest, um, and he's asked the law firm to take it on as, as kind of a pro bono case, which is how a lot of pro bono cases come to these big law firms. Um, it's either a particular interest that, that a partner has or a particular interest that a, that a, that a client has. Um, and so, and so Lena is assigned to work on this and um, it's her job to investigate potential plaintiffs to lead this lawsuit. So they need someone who is descended from American slaves and they and they they need someone who's kind of photogenic, who like will be the the face of the lawsuit for the press. And um, and she kind of on the personal side, she is the daughter of a of a relatively famous artist. At this point, he throughout her life he was very unsuccessful, but just in the past kind of four or five years, he has finally gained some some critical um, success. Uh, an artist named Oscar Sparrow. And her mother died when she was four years old. She has very few memories of her mother. And her father was so devastated by the death of her mother that he has basically been unable to talk about her throughout Lena's life. And Lena, um, you know, remembers very vividly the depression, the long depression that, that, that her father was in following um, her mother's death. And so she, throughout her life, has been very hesitant to kind of push the issue, to, to ask about her mother for fear of, of provoking another bout of depression. Um, and her father, who's basically her only family. I mean, uh, her, she and her father um, have lived together. She still lives, lives in the same house that she grew up in, um, even though she's 24 years old and working as a corporate lawyer. She still lives with her father in her childhood home. And she's she's a little bit at the start at the opening of the book. She's very ambitious. She's um, she she kind of likes I, I think this clear path that's set out for her in the law firm. You know, it's very it's a very kind of lockstep. 
every year you you go up a level, you gain in seniority, and the partners are at the top, and and it's it's a very kind of clear path to success, and it's also very financially stable. And she has grown up in sort of this chaotic, you know, world of her artistic father and and his artistic crazy friends. And she's kind of rebelled against all of that by going into this corporate environment. And, um, but she, you know, at the opening of the book, you know, she's, she's a little unclear of who she is and she's a little, she's, she's kind of gone through all of this education and she's, she's very, she's ambitious and she's driven, but, um, I think she's starting to question, you know, is this the right place for me? And, 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 you know, okay, I'm here now in this corporate world and is this really where I want to be? Um, so that's, that's Lena. And, uh, but explain the connection then between, she's, she's involved in this search for a plaintiff and this leads her to Josephine. Yeah. So she, um, so she's looking for a plaintiff and, um, and her father gives her a, he, he, she's talking to him about the case that she's been assigned to and the research that she's doing to, to try and find a potential plaintiff. And her father says, oh, you know, there's this, there's this, this um, gallery show that's opening and this might be of interest to you. And it, and it's, um, and she learns of this controversy that is roiling the art world, which is that these renowned paintings, antebellum paintings, that for 150 years have been attributed to the southern painter Luann Bell are now believed to, in fact, have been the work of her housegirl, Josephine. And so there, there's an art historian um, who, who has done, you know, exhaustive research into the works and believes that, in fact, it, it was Josephine. But there's, you know, a corresponding group of, of historians and experts who, who believe that, it, that these are the work of Luann. And so there's this kind of authorship um, controversy going on. And Lena becomes very interested in this, and she becomes kind of taken with this, with this figure of Josephine, who was a young woman, um, un, you know, unknown as an artist in her time, and who, and, and nothing is known about, about what happened to her. After she left, they know that, that she left Bell Creek, the historical record shows that she left Bell Creek, um, but, but no one knows what, ha- what happened to her. Did, did she, is she, you know, did she live? Did she die? Did she have descendants? And so Lena becomes, um, becomes kind of obsessed with finding, she does, she becomes obsessed. <laughs> she becomes obsessed with finding a descendant of Josephine Bell's to lead this lawsuit that she's working on with her firm. And that's, is basically the book. I mean, that so so Lena's research into Josephine and trying to find a descendant is is the at once once we've reached that point. That's the that's the course of the book is following Lena on her path to find Josephine. Right. So we're we're going to stop there with the plot because that that sets everything <laughs> up and people can go and read the book and find out. <laughs> Uh, but do you have a favorite passage that you would like to read? Um, yeah, sure. This is um, 
This is a passage um, that is kind of about, I don't know, maybe pretty pretty early on in the book. And Lena has just found out about Josephine. She's just read about the, the controversy, and she's just started to research um to research Josephine Bell, and she finds a photograph of Josephine and online, and this is a photograph that she returns to again and again and again in the course of the book as sort of a source of inspiration, and and um, and for me, I remember in thinking about the book and and trying to to finish the book, you know, working on a on a on a debut novel is as as you know, Carolyn, is a difficult thing <laughs> to kind of justify to yourself and justify the world. And I kept kind of returning to Josephine and like this character who I really who I had become very obsessed with and um and Lena uh becomes very obsessed with Josephine and she keeps returning to this photograph of, of Josephine in the book to to inspire her. And this is the first time that she that she finds this photograph. Okay. Lena stopped her mouse and narrowed her eyes. The pixelated screen glowed silver. It was a black and white image degraded as though covered in dust or viewed through a screen. The caption read, Luann Bell and house slave Josephine, Bell Creek, 1852. A dark-haired white woman sat in a rocking chair on the porch of a house. Her dress was pale, with voluminous skirts folded around her, her hair parted in the middle and gathered up in an elaborate style. Luann Bell were the barest of smiles. Her hands were clasped tightly in her lap. Next to her stood a young black woman, her hair pulled completely away from her face, her brown skin clear, the face broad with high cheekbones and full lips. Even in such a poor reproduction, Lena could see the beauty there. The eyes had a lightness to them, as though colored blue or green, and a sense of movement. Josephine's shoulders were straight and square, rigid with a sense of anticipation. Josephine did not smile. She looked levelly into the camera, her face inscrutable. The camera had been placed so that the entire front of the house fit within the photographic frame, and it seemed that it was the house, not the women, that the photographer had sought to capture. The women had been there on the porch. They had stopped where they were, not with any enthusiasm, but perhaps with a sense of duty, a wish to not be bothersome. Yes, we will remain still. Yes, we will direct our gaze toward the camera. Had Josephine known then, standing on the porch beside Luann, that her world was about to change? Josephine's head was poised and erect, held carefully, perhaps at the request of the photographer, or perhaps because she had reason to move through her days with care. Josephine's hands were clasped before her, the fingers tensely intertwined as though one hand pulled the other from a turbulent sea. Her eyes were fogged as if in motion. Perhaps she had looked beyond the photographer. Perhaps she had contemplated the road ahead. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Uh, that's, that really um, sums up uh, the whole story in a way. Um, it's really beautifully done. Uh, Thank you. So what would you like readers to take away from The House Girl? Um, gosh, uh, I think, you know, I mean, I, I think reading is such a personal 
personal uh, journey. I mean, I think it's such a personal experience for everyone. So I would, um, I would, you know, I, I, I feel a little hesitant to inject myself into that process. <laughs> but, um, but I think, you know, obviously the book um, asks questions about race and how this country um, looks at that history and how the, the history of slavery in America is remembered and how enslaved people as individuals are remembered. And, and so I would hope that this book, you know, prompts readers to ask, start asking questions uh, themselves and to, to hopefully start a discussion about race, whether in their book club or among their friends who read it or their family members. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, race is such a difficult thing to talk about in this country to, you know, to, to this day. And, and, you know, I, my dad is a social worker and I grew up, he had this, 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 uh, thing that he would always say, he was like, Oh, we got to vent. You have to vent your emotions. You have to vent. You have to talk about things. You have to vent. And, um, and I, I kind of grew up with this idea that if something is difficult to talk about, if we are afraid of talking about it, it means we should talk about it more. And, and so, and I think that that, um, is, you know, is very true about, about race in America. And I think we're, you know, people are afraid to talk about it for saying the wrong things. Um, but I think that means we should talk about it more. And so I hope that this book can be part of that discussion. Great. And what about you personally? What are you working on now? I'm working on a second novel. Um, it is called The Last Romantics, and it's very different than The House Girl. It's not historical. It's um, it's about four siblings uh, and um, a brother and three sisters and three uh, as adults and uh, the brother dies kind of suddenly and tragically and it's about the sisters kind of coming to grips with his life and his death and his girlfriend who's with him when he dies and there's a little bit of suspicion about whether she was involved with his death and um but it's basically it's sort of a family portrait i guess focusing on the on the sibling relationships which i think are fascinating i think sibling dynamics are are very rich. <laughs> As a mother of three children, <laughs> I think they're very rich. <laughs> That's great. Uh, I'm, in a way, I'm sorry it's not historical because I'd love to have you come back, come back and talk to us. <laughs> <laughs> book three, book three. I mean, I love history and I loved doing the research for this book, so I'm sure I will, I will return to historical fiction at some point. Oh, excellent. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Carolyn. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am C.P. Leslie, and today I've been talking with Tara Conklin, the author of The House Girl. You can find out more about her at www.taraconklin.com. Like us on Facebook, search for New Books in Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histvic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also visit me at blog.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. My social media links are under the About Me tab. You can find information about my novels under the Books tab. The New Books Network is run by volunteers. 
If you enjoyed the interview you've just heard, please consider donating to our network. It can be as simple as going to any page at newbooksnetwork.com and clicking on the link to shop at amazon.com. Goodbye until next month when I will host another conversation about new books in historical fiction.